0: months ago we spoke to M, the creator of the wonderful verbal diorama when we spoke we mentioned talking about female superheroes a theme close to both M and graham's hearts so for this podcast we're going to look at the history of female superheroes the ups and the downs the success of today and what is coming next hi em how are you doing
1: hi guys i'm good how are you
0: Very well,
2: thank you very much.
0: Very good, thank you. I've been really looking forward to discussing this with you. Me too. (laughs) Excellent. So before we start, can you please say where people can find your excellent shows?
1: On any podcast app that they have lying around, I guess. Search for Verbal Diorama. It's on my Apple podcast, Google podcast, Spotify, all of the big ones. I'm on all of the social medias, just at Verbal Diorama. That's kind of all people need to know.
0: What shows have you done recently, Em?
1: Two most recent ones I've done have been Logan, Edge of Tomorrow and I've actually just about drop a completely different movie entirely, Legally Blonde. My choice of movies is eclectic. I do like to be a bit different but Logan especially has been really, really well-received. I kind of did pour quite a lot of my heart and soul into Logan because I think it's a movie that really deserves talked about because I think it's wonderful and I think as well it's being talked about quite a lot at the moment because of Joker and I think quite a lot of people are comparing it to Joker. I will say I've not seen Joker so I can't comment on what Joker is like but I can comment and say that Logan is amazing, phenomenal filmmaking, such a massive risk and it just paid off completely. I love it.
2: I'm just looking on my podcast app at the minute. So I've only got up as far as I'm halfway through Willow. So I just finished John Carter and now I'm on Willow. So I've still got the Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, and then I'll be on Logan.
1: And it's interesting as well, because the Iron Giant is a bit of a passion project for me. And it was something that I really wanted to talk about because of just how wonderful the Iron Giant is. And But specifically, how wonderful animation is and just how often animation is disregarded as being, in inverted commas, just for children because it's animation. And I think that's just a completely wrong mindset to have. Oh, absolutely. Um, I said in the episode, I think it's the purest form of art because you can do anything with animation. You can do things that you could never do in a live action movie, and you can still bring all of the emotion and the passion, and the nuance, and and anything a live-action movie can do, animation can do, backwards and in high heels, you know, to quote (laughs) the famous Ginger Rogers phrase. I think it's wonderful, and I think The Iron Giant is the perfect example of an animated movie that children will enjoy, but it's not just for children. That was one of the reasons I wanted to specifically do The Iron Giant, and because it's 20 this year, which is incredible.
0: Okay, let's go back to female superheroes. Okay. So, Em, This is a subject very close to your heart. Why is that?
1: I think I've mentioned before on my podcast that talking about representation and talking about seeing yourself on screen and seeing role models and especially kind of female role models, you know, females being heroes. As I was growing up, there were some good examples of female heroes, females that were we're really strong and capable and equal to the male characters, mainly Princess Leia, to be honest. And then as I kind of grew up, Ellen Ripley, I grew up reading comics, mainly X-Men comics, to be honest. And my favourite character in the X-Men comics was Rogue, because I always felt like I related to her specifically. But when you look at the movies of the kind of late 80s and 90s, there doesn't seem to be very many kind of good female hero characters. In that kind of era, generally women were either the co-star to the man or just the love interest. Watching movies like Indiana Jones was great because Indiana Jones was always this big hero. But then the women, they were capable to a degree, apart from that really annoying one who just Shrieked all the time. She wasn't.
0: That would be the then, one that married Steven Spielberg then?
1: Yeah. Kate Capshaw. Uh, I can't remember. Kate Capshaw. Yeah, she just screamed a lot. <laughs> generally, you always kind of found that the woman was just there to be the love interest. It wasn't really till like, the late 90s that I kind of felt like there was a turn in the way that women were represented, especially when we are talking about female heroes or. What we would determine to be a female hero, whether that be a female who is completely equal to male counterparts in a story, or whether it's superheroes. Because it wasn't really till the late 90s, for example, it was 1999 when The Mummy came out that I genuinely thought that there was finally a woman character in Evie who was not only equal to Rick O'Connell, but actually quite a lot better than him in pretty much every regard, because I did an episode on The Mummy. You did, um, which is
0: a really good episode.
1: Genuinely still one of my favourite episodes that I've ever done because I love The Mummy so much. Evie is literally the linchpin that holds everything together. Yes, she is the person who releases Inhotep by accident, but she's the only one who can sort it out. And although the film does kind of sometimes fall into the tropes of the fact that she gets captured and everything, it's still ultimately Evie and her knowledge that saves the day. And then, obviously, we go into the era of the X-Men. I know we are going to talk about sort of a bit later, and I don't want to jump ahead too much because I know you guys want to talk about earlier than that. No, that's fine. Go for it. The time before I was even born. Growing up reading the X-Men comics, and watching the X-Men cartoon. When I found out that they were making a movie of X-Men in 2000, I was probably the most excited I've ever been about anything. I remember watching that trailer and just being completely besotted and just so excited that they were finally making an X-Men movie. To me, this was like dream come true because it was finally seeing the characters that I love so much. I've talked about X-Men a little bit. I mentioned it a little bit in the episode I did on X-Men Dark Phoenix about how much the X-Men generally as a group mean to me about it's an allegory for racial divide and, and, you know, homophobia. Certainly homophobia. Yeah, but essentially it's a story about these people who are different, whatever their difference is are with other people it's about feeling different growing up I always felt different I never felt like I was the same as kind of everyone else like all my friends at school So I just kind of felt I related to this kind of group of individuals who were different but kind of embraced their difference and their difference made them special and it made them unique and they had these powers and they could use their powers for good. And so to have this kind of group of people that also had these differences, but they worked together as a team and they embraced their differences and they fought against oppression and all of that, knowing that a movie was coming out about these characters that I loved and respected so much, it just genuinely melted the world to me. It's really difficult to describe it. but And obviously part of the love I had for X-Men was, For the female characters on the team, because although it was a bit more kind of male heavy, the women on the team were actually some of the more powerful mutants. I always found that quite fascinating, that that it was the women who had the vast majority of the power, especially when talking about a story like the Dark Phoenix saga. Jean Grey is probably one of the most powerful mutants in the X-Men, just in its entirety, without the whole kind of Dark Phoenix stuff, she generally is one of the more powerful. I find it all quite fascinating. And it's a topic that I could talk quite a lot about, but I feel like I don't want to talk too much because I want you guys to talk now.
2: What did you think of the first X-Men having Rogue played so young and not really having her, um, her abilities to the fore so much? So she just seems to absorb people's life forces. She wasn't pulling anybody's superpowers out of them like she does in the comics.
1: I'll be honest, I was really disappointed. Uh,
2: I thought Um, you might be.
1: Anna Paquin, I really like. She's great. I think she's a great actress. I have nothing but nice things to say about her. The way I understand it is they obviously wanted to kind of mix two characters. They wanted to have Rogue and they also wanted to have Jubilee. And to have a character like Jubilee... Can In I time out here? Of-
0: Sorry, what's Jubilee?
2: Jubilee's- i only ever seen the film. I've never read Jubilee's only- another uh, X-Men character. Okay.
1: So Jubilee was a young mutant who was introduced, I mainly know her from the original animated series. So she's introduced as this really young mutant into the team. She's, think she's like an orphan her superpower is it's not like flares but it's like this Fire, um,
2: fireworks I always think of it as
1: fireworks. yeah out, out of like her hands she's used in the cartoon as the introduction into exposition so you know oh why are we doing this like what's this for and you know just for that kind of purpose and I feel like the filmmakers wanted a character that the the audience could kind of focus on as these are our eyes on this world Um, and they wanted it to obviously be a young character, and they wanted it to be someone like Jubilee. In the cartoon, Jubilee was always kind of paired off with Wolverine. From that point of view, kind of made sense. But additionally, as you've kind of pointed out, not many people knew who Jubilee was. And so they've kind of taken an established character like Rogue and mixed them into one character. So they've taken away this very, obviously Rogue is an adult woman. She is a bit feisty, a bit more of a, not a sexual character, but she's a bit more of a deviant, I guess. But her introduction, in part, was based on Ms. Marvel, who obviously we kind of know Ms. Marvel in the sense of Captain Marvel. But there was an iteration of Ms. Marvel who obviously had the same powers as Captain Marvel with the flight and everything like that. And, and Rogue's ability for flight, was actually stolen from Ms. Marvel. Yeah. But Rogue was always paired off with Gambit. They had this will-they-won't-they romance going on. It was all very interesting. She was an interesting character. She had a bit of mystique around her, excuse the pun, because mystique is apparently canonically her mother. There's a lot going on with Rogue, but they obviously chose not to go into any of that. And I don't know whether it was to do with rights or whether they couldn't go into her story or, or whatever, I'm not sure. So they obviously had this idea they wanted a character but they didn't want to use Jubilee, so they'd use Rogue. I really don't like it. <laughs> no,
2: no. I, I mean, so, oh, great, here we go. At some point in this film, she that she's going to break out as Rogue and, and go really mental and heavy and smash stuff up, as she did in the comics and in the animated series. But she never did. She just became the victim the whole way through it. And I got so yeah. annoyed.
1: And I talk about it a little bit in Logan. I know I keep referencing my episodes, I don't mean to. No, but... you carry on. No,
2: that's fine.
1: In Logan, I mentioned a little bit about Hugh Jackman, and, and obviously he's played this character for such a long time. And genuinely, I think he's wonderful. I think he's fantastic Wolverine. But I do acknowledge the fact that the X-Men movies have primarily focused on Wolverine, yeah. which has always been a bit strange, because... You would think that a movie about the X-Men would focus on the (laughs) X-Men. I don't have a massive problem with the movies focusing on Wolverine because I think that Hugh Jackman is so charismatic and brings so much to the role. I love his Wolverine completely. But the pairing of him and Rogue is so that we can see that side of Wolverine, that kind of caring, considerate side after he's a bit grumpy. But yeah. he actually starts to care for Rogue and looks out for her. The character of Rogue was always a bit of a disappointment. And I know that they tried, because as the actress grew up through making these movies, they tried to make her a little bit more Rogue-ish. But it never kind of sat well with me. And now that Marvel has bought Fox and now that Marvel has the rights to these characters, the one thing I want to see is Rogue. And I want to see a proper Rogue. Yeah, I don't want to see... Some diluted version of Rogue or Young Rogue. I want to see proper Rogue. And I also want to see proper Gambit. The Channing Tatum Gambit movie has basically cancelled. It's no longer happening. I still want to see Gambit. Because them together, I love them completely. I think they, they're they just wonderful, the way they play off each other. I would love to see Rogue and Gambit on screen together. That's my aim. That's <laughs> my goal.
2: Well, I think most comic book fans would love to see that pairing And the the other thing is what you said that was quite interesting about why wasn't it about the X-Men. Also, why was Cyclops such a dick the whole time? (laughs) I mean, in the comics, he's brilliant. They just played him as a sort of comedy character and he's the leader of the X-Men. Come on, give him something to do.
1: Once they realised the focus was on Wolverine, other characters got completely sidelined and it's not just Obviously, Cyclops, but Cyclops is probably the main victim of this, but also Storm. Oh, God, yes. Uh, Storm, a completely fascinating, fantastic character. So much history behind her that you could go into. I mean, she controls the weather, all of the things you can do with controlling the weather. And she's basically reduced to this line about Toads getting struck by lightning. And that's the only thing people remember. And it's Hallie frickin' Berry.
2: I know, and she Um, didn't get good until Days of Future Past, when I thought she was brilliant in that. They'd really upped her powers by that stage, when they were protecting the temple in the the Himalayas. I thought she was fantastic in that, when she brought in the fog and then she brought in the lightning and it did it properly.
1: I'm hopeful that Disney will be faithful to the characters as much as Disney is this massive behemoth and as much as people are kind of there's this little backlash against the MCU at the moment mm. um, I kind of feel like since like post End Game, like post Phase 3 with Spider-Man Far From Home I feel like a backlash has started against this franchise and these movies and
0: I
2: started long I before that him.
1: <laughs> it's led
2: by I Jeff that- this is Jeff's idea
1: <laughs> I do think partly because of this takeover of Fox. And I think that people are kind of seeing this massive conglomerate and how this can be seen as a negative thing to have this much power. I do have quite a lot of faith, I think, in Kevin Feige. I don't know whether that's misplaced or not, but I think we will see what will happen once once they start announcing the old Fox properties. I think we're going to get a Fantastic Four movie relatively soon. Because I think that's the one that's most ripe,
2: hopefully, for
1: doing. Because the last one was so terrible. They were, um, they were
2: all terrible.
1: They were all pretty bad, but the first couple of movies had Chris Evans in. Um uh, okay.
2: so
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I recently sat and watched the first Fantastic Four movie, and and honestly, Chris Evans was the only reason to watch it. And yeah, no, they the Welsh guy
2: in it. Which Welsh guy?
1: You and Griffith. Yeah, <sighs>
2: he's
1: not Chris Evans, though, is he?
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah. Em's talking with her ovaries here, not over her head.
1: <laughs> I'm talking with every fabric of my being. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's even more worrying. Okay. Okay. Moving on from the the object of your desires, which is Chris Evans.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he's not the main one, but he's one of. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I know you're a complex woman. You've got many needs. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: Back to the plot.
0: Christ, you too. I don't even know where to start now. Let's focus on 80s and 90s. So, Graham, you covered in your superhero flops podcast, uh, films like Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, Supergirl, Red Sonia, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the film M. Not the TV series. Not the TV series. We're going to come and talk about that in a minute.
2: That, that is sacred.
0: Tank Girl and Catwoman. Oh, God. There's Cat some Woman. real turkeys there. What are your thoughts on these films? Why didn't they work?
1: Actually, I'm going to probably hit you with a bit of a curveball and say I loved Red Sonia specifically Red Sonia because when I was a kid, obviously, I watched a lot of Disney movies, but also I watched a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies with my dad. And Red Sonia was... On quite a lot as a child, because although we used to watch some of the more 18-rated, I probably shouldn't be admitting that my dad let me watch 18-rated Arnie movies, but... How old um, are you when you're watching, watching not, these? How old? Uh, under 18. <laughs> under 18. A um, lot under 18, but, I would have said. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but, but my, but the thing is, is is my dad used to love watching them. So we just used to watch them together. And it was like movies like Commando and Raw Deal and the really kind of older 80s kind of Arnie movies. But Red Sonja was obviously a bit more tame. It was a bit easier to watch than some of those. I had such a fondness for Red Sonja. I know that they've been talking for a long time about remaking it. And I remember back in the day when Rose McGowan was linked to the role of Red Sonja. I am completely for a Red Sonja remake. I think that now is the right time for a character like Red Sonja, empowered and fierce, you know, a warrior in her own right. And the fact that she's the hero of the story, obviously her name's in the title, it kind of gives it away, but also that Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, I think his name is Lord Calidor, I believe. And He, it, he wasn't was subtle
0: though, was he really? Sonja, your no. father's dead. <laughs> <laughs>
1: her supporting character. So you've got Brigitte Nielsen as Red Sonia, who I think is just terrific. I've got to be honest. Mm. I know she's probably not the best actress in the world. And I think it's important to note as well that in this movie, the hero is a woman. But yeah, also the villain is a woman as well. And I think that's really important because women can be good guys, but also women can be bad guys. And I think it's important to have that equality in a way to say, well, You know, yes, we want more women to be heroes. We want more women to be the protagonist of the story. But we also kind of want women to be good antagonists. It's kind of a bit of a two-way street. You can't have women as always the hero, same as you can't have men as always the hero. I think that it works both ways. And I really like Red Sonja, the fact that it's a woman against a woman.
0: But the thing was, with these films, and and again, I, I throw in things like Catwoman and Supergirl, they never connected with an audience at that time. Why do you think that was?
1: I think a lot of times movies come out at the wrong time. I kind of feel very much like you can have an idea for a movie and it just won't connect with an audience because the audience isn't ready for it. It's either not the demand for it or the audience just doesn't really understand why it's important. I have like two quite good examples, I think, of this. The first example is Movie Watchmen. So when Watchmen came out, I think at the time, people were like, well, what is this? They're supposed to be good guys. Like, they're supposed to be superheroes. Like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. But now we've got a period of time where the MCU has really kind of taken hold of the zeitgeist in general. And people are kind of feeling that superhero fatigue. And we're kind of starting to think, you know, and when we're talking about superheroes, we're talking about... Shows like Amazon's The Boys, oh, which yeah. came out and was absolutely fantastic, and it came out at exactly the right time. Yes, I agree. You, you're on
0: Green Wavelands again. Oh, I you? loved.
2: I loved that show. I sat down and I thought, this is going to be nothing like the comics, and within ten minutes, I was going oh, this is brilliant. They've really got the concept. They've got the idea. They understand the structure. They've changed a few things about, but in general, they've got it brilliantly.
1: Sometimes things come out at the wrong time. And the movie I'm covering next, actually, I think, again, is a movie that came out at the wrong time, and that was Mystery Men. Because oh, Mystery I love Men Mystery Men. It's so good, isn't it? That's coming out on the 10th of November. And, and again, I feel like had that movie come out last year, I think Mystery Men would be a fantastic success. I think that people would see this comedic look at superhero yeah. trope.
2: It'd be Shazam. I think that, yeah. It'd be like yeah, Shazam. Exactly. Yeah. yeah,
1: Exactly. I think people would absolutely love Mystery Men now, but it's been forgotten in the ether of time because people didn't see it back in 1999 no. and they should have because it's <laughs> wonderful.
0: It's a good film. Good it's film. Very good yeah. film. But that's interesting because in the whole thing of going back in time – Universal horror cycle in the 30s and 40s, it fell apart in the end, and they did comedy, if you like, the Mystery Men being Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. It's the same sort of thing. You know, now Mystery Men would be perfect. Yeah. And yet the odd thing is we get something like Joker,
2: <laughs>
0: yes. you know, which, which doesn't conform to anything. And yet it's turned out to be a massive
2: hit. And a surprising yeah. massive hit because I thought it was too arty to be a hit and it's it's, it's an art got, film yeah. it is an art film and it's got layers and depths and I, I just I'm really surprised that so many people liked it
0: no it's, I liked it and I hate superhero yeah, films I know but
2: it is <laughs> bizarre and strange
0: I think the thing with it is you know normally I don't like that sort of film it definitely <laughs> plays on early Martin Scorsese particularly the king of comedy more so than Taxi Driver a lot of people mention Taxi Driver it's definitely king of comedy. And what I like about it is it's an unreliable narrator, like Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now. I love that sort of movie. And there are four endings through that film where you can think, actually, this is where it really ends. The rest is fantasy. It was just something different. The fact it's directed by the guy that made, you know, the Hangover movies. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Unbelievable. I just can't believe that this guy's done something of this depth and complexity. I think we spoke a great deal of Mystery Men and we spoke about Catwoman and those sort of things. And these films were technically failures. The whole thing turned around at the end of the 90s with a TV version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, this is a film that didn't really work. Joss Whedon got it back, turned it into a TV series. It was a huge hit. Why do you think it worked as a TV series? And what was the impact at that time?
1: Brace yourselves, get a drink, sit down in a comfortable chair. <laughs> I'm pouring <'cause... laughs> a Fanta Dark Orange. <laughs> okay, so Buffy. Right. First of all, I wanna say something quickly about the movie. Because as it was you awful. Mentioned,
0: is that what you're gonna say?
1: No. Oh I'm not. Controversial. Seriously. Seriously. I genuinely have a fondness for the movie. I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made. Let me just put that out there. I know a lot of people don't like it. And I know that the general consensus is the TV show is better. And let me tell you, the TV show is exponentially better than this movie in pretty much every regard. But knowing what I know about this movie and about where it came from and about the difficulties that they had to get it made, Christy Swanson, she's no Sarah Michelle Gellar, don't get me wrong, but I think she kind of does her best at this initial... Buffy Summers, in a sense that this is the Buffy before we see the Buffy. So I kind of take it as this is a precursor to the real Buffy. I think it's kind of widely known that Donald Sutherland was not the easiest person to work with, especially on this movie. He actually rewrote a lot of his own stuff. So they told him, Oh, Donald, you have to read this. And he would go, No, I'm not saying that. I'm going to say this instead. So (laughs) if you watch the movie, Sometimes it feels like Donald Sutherland isn't in the same movie. When you've got an actor of the calibre of Donald Sutherland in your production, you're not going to say no to him. (laughs) So he he basically... Clearly they ought to. And obviously, Joss Whedon had this idea. He wanted to make a horror movie. It was gradually diluted as the production continued into more of a comedy. And he never wanted to make a comedy. He wanted to make more of a horror. And so... That's probably another part of the reason why, A, Joss Whedon doesn't really want to talk about it, and B, why he went off to actually make the TV show. And the interesting thing about the TV show is it's actually listed as being executively produced by the Kazooies. And the Kazooies, the director of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, so basically they were like a husband and wife team. And they actually made this movie and they basically continue to own the production rights. That's why for the whole of Buffy the Vampire Slayer going forward to for the TV show, you'll notice that the Kazooies are credited. So basically, they just kept getting, I don't know if they kept getting money, I assume they did, because their names were against this movie. I think that a lot of people discredit this movie uh, because they're like, well, the TV show is better and it, and it is a bit of a crap movie and the production values are terrible, but It's also got a really fun performance by Luke Perry, who obviously passed away um, last year, I believe. And it's one of my favourite Luke Perry performances that he's ever done. And it is fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. And I think that's really important because when you compare it to the real Buffy, Buffy as a TV show was obviously, and Buffy the character, was always meant to be the inversion of this trope of in a horror movie, you always have the blonde girl who dies at the start because she's stupid. Um, You know, she runs the wrong way and she gets killed. And Joss Whedon basically had this idea of, well, actually, what if the blonde girl who gets chased at the start of the movie, what if she is the person who can actually fight this bad guy, you know, whoever it is, you know, whether it's a vampire or a demon, what if she's the hero? It's a really interesting twist. On this kind of tired old trope
0: So let's go on to the TV series What did the TV series do That the film didn't?
1: Well pretty much everything (laughs) (laughs) Um, So first of all With the TV show It was primarily under Joss's control Although he had obviously a team Of incredibly talented writers Obviously pitched this idea to the studio Originally for season one It was a mid-season replacement For another show so that's why season one is famously only a 12-episode season, because it was really hurriedly put together. They did a pilot. The pilot, quite famously, didn't have Alison Hannigan as Willow, had another actress. They realised that the actress wasn't working, and so they got in Alison Hannigan. I didn't and, know
0: any of this. Who was the other actress?
1: Uh, the other actress was a lady called Riff Reagan. Um, I don't think she's done anything since, but the unaired pilot is available on YouTube. I okay. believe and oh, it's wow. essentially the same as the pilot so the same as episode 1 of Buffy but it's got a completely different Willow in it and it the production values are a little bit obviously a bit more dodgy because it's more it's a pilot so they didn't obviously want to spend a great deal of, of time or money on it I think the main reason why Buffy works is because of the primary cast and when I'm talking primary cast I'm talking Sarah Michelle Geller and um, Nicholas Brendan and Alison Hannigan and Anthony Stewart Head. Because those four are generally, I think when we're talking about later seasons, I know Giles does leave. Those kind of four central performances, I think the show lives or dies on those. Yeah. And I think that we always had to have a great Buffy. And I think Sarah Michelle Geller, I still believe she is so. I mean, I know the fandom love her completely and you know think that she's literally the best Buffy and she is she there's no one who could have played Buffy like Sarah Michelle Gellar she was so robbed of awards some of the work that she does is just incredible so specifically the episode the body where she finds um her mother dead I mean oh my god she's phenomenal she's absolutely incredible and she was overlooked for an award and I'm like, How? I mean, she's she's amazing. She has also an episode where well it's it's like a two parter This Year's Girl and Who Are You or Who Are You in This Year's Girl. I can't remember. But it's the it's basically the body swap episode with Faith, where Faith is in Buffy's body and Buffy's in Faith's body, and so Sarah Michelle Geller is playing Faith playing Buffy. <laughs> and it's brilliant oh my god she's incredible I mean I don't understand why she didn't get all of the accolades and all of the awards for Buffy and I think that it's the the problem really with Buffy in generally kind of awards and stuff like that was it was overlooked because of its genre because of the supernatural genre it's more of a supernatural kind of horror show and I think that things like the Emmy Awards and stuff like that just completely overlooked it. It did get a couple of Emmys in its entirety. I believe it got an Emmy for Beer Bad for outstanding hair. Oh, good And the God. episode Beer Bad. Do you know what? Actually, the episode Beer Bad. I'll hold my hands up and say I think it's reasonably enjoyable. It's especially enjoyable when you drink while watching Beer Bad. It's immeasurably enjoyable. But <laughs> they got a they got an Emmy nod for hair, and then they they got a nomination for the episode Hush for writing. But I think I think that's about it. I'm genuinely quite angry. Um, do, you, do,
0: you, do you think it'd be more appreciated if it would be made now rather than then?
1: It probably would, but I think that Buffy as a show now would be completely different. I know that they're talking about remaking Buffy and p- kind of bringing it up today. I do feel like Buffy has this ability to be perennial in its enjoyment And I do feel that teenagers now can pick up a show like Buffy and can enjoy it, but I don't think they would make a show like Buffy in the same way they made Buffy before. And I don't know whether that's because Buffy was always based on this metaphor of high school is hell. So they use the demons and the monsters in Buffy as basically things that real teenagers come across in in kind of everyday life. They just use vampires and demons instead of, of using those real life things. And I do think that a lot of the stuff that affected teenagers and young people kind of back in the late 90s, early 2000s are the same. But there's also so many other things now, some things like social media and body image and all of that sort of stuff that Buffy never really kind of went into. I don't think that you could take a show like Buffy and just kind of plonk it in today's society. But I don't think that kids today of that sort of age wouldn't enjoy Buffy because I know that a lot of people do enjoy Buffy and they should because it's wonderful. Mm. Um, But I do think it speaks to a certain era in particular. And so the person who grew up in that time, but I don't think it excludes anyone. I think that's that's the greatness of the writing of Buffy is that it doesn't exclude. It doesn't exclude anyone who's older. me from enjoying it. It doesn't exclude anyone that's younger than me. So like I think they famously did an episode that was banned for a short period because it's an episode called Earshot. It was due to air, I think it was a week or a few days before Columbine. issue with the episode was that it wasn't based around a school shooting. So Buffy was infected and she had these thoughts in her head and she could hear that someone was planning to kill people, planning to shoot people. And eventually she finds character Jonathan in, like, the bell tower with a gun. But it turns out to not be Jonathan. It turns out to be someone else. And Jonathan was planning to kill himself. But nevertheless, even though it wasn't, like, a full shooting situation, the episode was basically not aired. Um, and I think it was aired quite a long time after because, obviously, Columbine was such a terrible, devastating um, event. But nowadays, obviously, it's a little more commonplace, I think, than anyone would ever want to have these kind of school shootings happen. And I I kind of feel like a show like Buffy, you couldn't put a supernatural spin on that and make it relevant. I think
0: there are three shows of that era that redefined how we watch TV. As you know, Graham, I mean, I have this thing about reset TV. Now, we grew up in the 70s. The whole thing with the TV episode is that when you watched it, you could go back to it the next week. And it didn't matter what you watched a week previous, it reset it to the word go. At this time there were three shows that reset this whole thing that you couldn't do this anymore. Buffy was one, the wire was another, and The Sopranos was a third. Now these three shows redefined what T V is. And T V today is as a result of these three programs. You couldn't watch a random episode of Buffy, then watch one from two series on and it would it, it would just would, wouldn't make any sense to you. Yeah.
1: With Buffy and the Monster of the Week, essentially, they were self-contained stories within a larger arc of stories. You would have this season-long arc, whichever season you're talking. So in season one, you had the master wanting to rise from the depths and take over the world. So that was like your season-long arc. But then each individual episode had its own monster of the week. For example, in season one, you had an episode called The Puppet Show, whereby Buffy was fighting against demonic puppets, (laughs) which is actually a lot better of an episode than it sounds. (laughs) I'm glad. So you could watch the whole entirety of a season of Buffy and completely love it and enjoy it. And whilst I'll always be an advocate for Buffy, it does have episodes that maybe filler and not as good there are more outstanding episodes than there are crap episodes of Buffy but you always kind of have this overarching uh, big bad so to speak and then you have your monster of the week and that was quite unique in the sense that I feel like with a show like Buffy and it's one of those where I have recommended certain episodes to people and gone this is a great episode just because of its self-containedness So you wouldn't necessarily have to know who the characters are. You wouldn't have to know the overarching big bad storyline that was going on because you can kind of just pick it up, watch it and put it back. And then if you want to carry on watching the rest of the episodes then you can, I would always say you can't really watch episodes out of order in that regard because there's no point picking up a season six episode, watching it and then going back to season three and watching that because then you're going to go, well, why is she there? Like what? what what's yeah. going on? Because it, it wouldn't make sense. Doppelgangland is a really good example because Doppelgangland is a really great self-contained episode where you have this kind of alternate universe and it works so well as like this self-contained story.
0: I mean, for me, the two great episodes are Hush and Once More With Feeling. Yeah. Could you watch those independently?
1: Absolutely, I would if a person came to me and said, I want to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, what episode should I watch? I would say Hush. And I would say Hush because it's a great standalone story. It mentions the overarching series arc a little bit because we kind of go a little bit into the initiative and all of that. I kind of feel like if you watch it, you'll be like, well, who are these military guys? Like what's going on? But as a standalone episode, it's not only one of the, best written episodes that they've ever done. It's also one of the best produced episodes. It's got the best villains, the best kind of standalone villains you'll see on Buffy because they're absolutely terrifying. It's got some great character work. It's got great humour. As a recommendation for an episode, I would recommend Hush over Once More With Feeling any day because Once More With Feeling deals with that overarching season six, the sense of kind of depression that Buffy's feeling, the fact that she was in heaven and her friends have basically taken her out of heaven where she was happy and safe. And they brought her back to this real world, real life. She doesn't know how to cope. She can't cope with it. She's really suffering from mental health issues. It's not really addressed as such in the episode, but she is. It's got this kind of lovely bubble of a musical, which is great because the music is great and the lyrics are great and it's executed perfectly and it I've got the soundtrack and I listen to it a lot and I love it but deep down it's a really kind of sensitive topic because it is dealing with Buffy's depression it's an episode that has this very frothy bubbly exterior but when Buffy is actually singing and saying you know how she's feeling you don't truly understand how she's feeling unless you know what she's been through and if you just picked up once more with feeling and watched it you would enjoy it and I guarantee you because the villain is fantastic his name is sweet and he's very cool it's got some really phenomenal choreography and Sarah Michelle Geller did all of her own singing and it's it's really really good and it's one of my faves but
0: they kept her to yeah. a minimum though were not they? she wasn't the strongest of singers um, Alison Hannigan was the, a, a far better singer
1: well, Alison Hannigan actually didn't do, uh, she didn't actually sing. Didn't she? Because she didn't want to. No. She famously there had, I so think, one line up. in a song. But yeah, Sarah Michelle Geller was kind of the main the main focus of the whole thing. And I know wow. Spike gets a really good song as well. And James Masters is a trained musician. And yeah, vocalist.
0: he is. He's a very good singer. He's got his yeah. own rock group as well.
1: Exactly. And Anthony Stewart Head as well is a wonderful singer. singer. Emma Benson's a great singer as well, the lady who plays Tara. She's absolutely fantastic. But you don't really hear Alison Hannigan sing because she basically said, Look, I don't want to. I'm really uncomfortable. They are probably the two standout episodes. You probably could kind of pick both up and watch them and enjoy them. But I do think there's a lot more to the story behind Once More with Feelings than there is in Hush.
0: So we're talking about <laughs> female superhero movies.
2: Oh, I remember and super this superheroes topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
0: and, and Buffy is really quite key because this is where it all changed. And that brings us more up to date. And And things that didn't work before now work. Supergirl working on TV, Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. Why do they now work and what do they mean to you? And, and Em, I'm particularly interested in Captain Marvel because – did you take your niece to Captain Marvel? I and, did
1: take my niece to Captain Marvel. And how
0: did she get on with that? She found Quite it boring, famously. as I did? No?
1: no <laughs> she she was actually a bit bored by the film. Yeah,
0: I, I relate uh, with her.
1: And And the thing is, obviously, she, at the time, was eight years old. I appreciate that the attention span of an eight-year-old is okay, but I think she obviously needed a little less kind of exposition at the start. She really wasn't feeling it. Pretty much as soon as she's captured by the scrolls and she breaks free, at that point, she was fully invested. And she absolutely loved it all the way to the very end. And we walked to the car. She wouldn't stop talking about it. And she wouldn't stop talking about how wonderful it was to have a girl be the hero. And she obviously loved the Flurkin, because I was making jokes about Jess being a Flurkin and uh, she was like is she really a Flurkin? and I was like yep and I was like she's got a little dimension in her tummy and everything where she stores everything um <laughs> I, I can I can neither confirm nor deny whether my cat is actually a flurkin or not <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah so the the whole kind of premise of the movie she absolutely loved I've always kind of said that the it's very rare that I go to the cinema twice to see the same movie. And the only other movie that I did that with was Chicago, because I loved the movie Chicago. No, more with um, you on that
0: one. More on Chicago than Captain Marvel.
1: Chicago, great. I love it. It's uh, a great movie. But So I saw Captain Marvel without my niece the second time. It was obviously a lot easier to watch the movie without an eight-year-old going, I'm bored <laughs> at the start. <laughs> because she's a child, she needed a toilet break halfway between. So I missed like two or three minutes of the movie originally. I was a 60-year-old when I
0: saw it and I needed three toilet breaks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was an experience that was great to have that experience with her and it was great to have that experience on my own and and to to take thoughts from her and to kind of give her the opportunity to see that because I do think it's important to have – even if it's not a role model that you completely one hundred percent can relate to or understand, to have that role model on screen is what everyone wants. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a sixty-year-old man or whether you're a nineteen-year-old woman. You still want to have some sort of representation That's on screen that, that looks that looks like you or that you can relate to, you can understand. And for me, I immediately kind of resonated with.
2: Carol. So to, to go back to Jeff's question, uh, and it's one I str- <laughs> it's one I struggle with. Having you know read c- comics uh, and loved all superhero comics in the sixties and early seventies, why now do they make sense and why have they clicked? And you know, I just I cannot see why they're you know um I love it because it's something I always enjoyed. But I just don't understand why they've clicked. I mean, I know why the ones in the 60s and 70s and 80s were all crap because they were shockingly badly produced and had terrible stories. But why do you think superhero films have grabbed people these days, particularly female-led ones like Wonder Woman and, and even if we talk about diversity, Black Panther as well. Why do you think they've clicked now?
1: main reason why they've clicked in a sense is just the fact that people have been waiting so long (laughs) for not not only um these kind of movies but good versions of these kind of movies because in the 2000s we had female-led movies you know we've mentioned Catwoman which was a complete disaster You know, how they got Halle Berry to do that, I have no idea, but it was pretty terrible. When you have a great actress or, or actor who does a role that's just awful and terrible, I think you have to kind of point the finger at A, the writers, because I think that the character in that movie is terribly written, and also the director, because at the end of the day, the director is in charge of this movie and is in charge of what the actor does. Even great actors phone performances in for a paycheck. It could very well be that Halle Berry just simply didn't care. I don't think anyone cared on that movie at all. But I do think a lot of the time, especially with movies like Catwoman and Elektra as well, they
0: were
1: were obviously spin-offs of previously existing movies or characters. So obviously with Catwoman, previously she'd been seen on screen in Batman Returns, obviously played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who really kind of personified that role for a generation of, yeah, everyone. And so they had the rights to this character. And then with Electra, she was obviously a spin-off of Daredevil, which was yep. obviously a Ben Affleck-headed movie, which wasn't a great movie, to be honest. But Electra was just awful. Um, Shockingly and I bad. And think they had the idea of making a movie, but they didn't really put any thought into it. It was more like, well, we've got these characters, let's use them, rather than we've got a great story for this character, let's build up a world that this character can live in and I think that's where something like Black Panther just completely excels at because it doesn't just we've obviously seen the character before because obviously he featured in Civil War yeah. so we had an introduction to the character and we understood the character's powers but even without seeing Civil War you could go into Black Panther and it's not just about the character of T'Challa, it's about his family and it's about his culture and it's about his country. And every part of that is immaculately kind of conceived on screen. It's brought to life by genuinely an amazing director in Ryan Coogler. And I think he clearly had this vision, a vision that was shared by the writers and by the actors who genuinely wanted to make a fantastic superhero origin story. That just happened to be about a black superhero. But I think that's where Black Panther really succeeds. It succeeds in setting up this origin story, but it also succeeds in its villain in Killmonger.
2: No, Killmonger. Great villain. Great villain.
1: So many layers. And it's very clear. I think it's really easy to say, Well, let's have a superhero origin story and let's have a villain and the villain just wants to take over the world. And we've seen it a lot of times. And Marvel is quite notoriously bad at this because the villain always wants to take over the world or whatever. Whatever enter stupid reason here for why the villain wants to take over the world. But with a character like Killmonger, you can see he's just a scared, lonely boy who's grown up knowing that his father was killed. Knowing where he's come from he decides to kind of go back there. It's a really interesting story about like family because obviously they're a royal family, but they're still a family and what family means to people. The performances are so great. And I think it's a really great example of how to do a great superhero origin story. And again, with a character like Wonder Woman, who is also a, a spin off, We saw Wonder Woman. Was it in Batman v Superman? I can't remember. Was it at the end yeah. of that? Yeah. I saw her.
0: No, you did at the climax of that. But she'd been, um, Diana Prince had been all the way through it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so we saw a little bit of her at the end. And so we were a little bit intrigued by her. And then again, a great director like Patty Jenkins. And to really build this character up, kind of, and to set it in the period of war, which is obviously something that Marvel had done with Captain America, the first Avenger. I think setting it as a period piece was a stroke of genius. Really. Yeah, I
2: do you know, I do too. And I think it, her, her origin story was so well put together as well. You know, you see her as a little girl, you then see her struggles and tribulations, you then see her as a sort of a teenager, and then she becomes more and more powerful. And you see that she's had to really struggle to get these powers, and then she gets the magical items, and then she meets a man, and then she's into the real world. So they actually, mm. the I think the genius of Patty Jenkins was she took her time. She didn't. exactly. It wasn't like, oh, I got, you know, bitten by a radioactive spider and now I've got all these powers. You know, she really. Because that would be the cheap Marvel way of doing it. That would be, be the cheap Marvel way. Building it up nice and slowly so that it all means something when it gets to the to the final battle. Even mm. though I did not enjoy the final battle. I thought it was a bit what, poor the, production. The, the, the but Wonder was, Woman. Wonder Woman, yeah.
1: I agree. I don't like the standard CGI battle no. thing. I, I don't understand it. it. I think that it's a great movie up to that point And I think the ending lets it down a yeah. little for me, but overall I think it, Absolutely astonishing movie and and really wonderfully made, really iconic. Some of the scenes are just so iconic. You know, when she steps into No Man's Land, I still think is one of the most iconic. It's one of
0: the best action sequences yeah. of uh, In the last ten years. Any
1: superhero movie, yeah. I think. Well, I, I just think it's certainly- phenomenal.
0: I am going to quote you completely out of context in future of Marvel movies are notoriously bad. Um, oh, I see what you've yeah. set yourself up there. Yeah, you, nice one, Em. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to be using that now, regardless of everything else that went around it, but that was good enough for
2: me. <laughs> You're going to be misquoted to hell. <laughs>
1: You're just going to take that clip and just play it. Exactly. Over. Absolutely.
0: absolutely yeah. uh, on, on a loop, that's going to be there because I'm going to use that because I'm not a Marvel fan. Where do we go from here? Yeah, you know, you've got Wonder Woman 2, you got Black Widow, you have got Captain Marvel 2 coming up. What's the future looking like?
1: I'm very excited for Wonder Woman 1984 because yep. again we've got Patty Jenkins. She is clearly taking her time with this. I think it would have been very easy for them to rush out a sequel considering the movie came out in 2017, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Wonder Woman 1984 um I believe comes out in 2021.
2: Yeah, it, it was going to come out earlier. But they thought the special effects were going to take a huge long time to do. And in actual fact, they got the special effects done really a lot faster than they thought. But they'd missed their slot. So they've had to put it back to the next slot. I'm really looking forward to that.
1: I think it's going to be really good. I love the promotional material that they've released with all the bright colours. And (laughs) um, I really do think it's going to be something special. Kind of good for DC because I kind of feel like DC haven't had the best time you know the whole Batman Superman kind of era yeah uh, but I think and Suicide learned...
2: Squad and oh yeah all sorts yeah, of yeah
1: I mean Suicide Squad is problematic there are parts of it that I do kind of like but overall I think it's a big hunky mess of a movie I'm really looking forward actually to what James Gunn couldn't do with the Suicide Squad Yep. because I love James Gunn Black Widow is interesting <sighs> because what we know from post-Endgame, is that Black Widow is dead. So, spoiler alert, So it's clearly going to be set in the past. It's Uh, going to
2: include Budapest, which they reference constantly in Avengers.
1: She's good, but I kind of feel a little bit with Black Widow that people have been asking for a Black Widow movie for a long, long time. And I feel a little bit like with Marvel, they obviously chose to do with Captain Marvel, and that was that was a good decision, I think. Yeah, But I also kind of feel like they're not mutually exclusive. Like, you can't have one female superhero and then wait a little bit and have another. You know, you could have two movies <laughs> that you're producing at the same time that happen to focus on female superheroes. I kind of feel a little bit with Black Widow, like with Mr. Boat.
2: Yeah, but... I agree. Well, it's got Florence Pugh in it. Yeah, it has got Florence Pugh in it.
1: Exactly. So
0: I think with her performances got- on Little Drummer Girl and Midsummer, I think this is going to be, I think this one could be a, a winner.
2: I'm more excited about WandaVision than Black Widow, really,
1: because... Yeah, the Disney Plus show. The Disney Plus show. But, but then when are we getting Disney Plus? No one knows.
2: Next spring, so, isn't it? Next spring, apparently. But, but the pirated versions will be out
0: well before oh, then. Oh, yeah,
2: see? And, exactly. And this is the problem Disney have. If they don't get this thing globally quickly, they're going to be screwed because the pirates would, are going to make a fortune. I was there
0: in the 80s, before you were born, Em, <laughs> uh, when E.T. was um, pirated by everybody, and everybody had a copy of the videocassette
2: yep. before the film came at the cinema. They're saying now that day one of Disney+, Plus. The Mandalorian is going to be the most pirated show in the world.
1: I think The Mandalorian is, is just going to skyrocket the pirate streaming sites and um, all of that. And I think that also, the other thing that really annoys me is social media is going to be all oh, over. God, Mandal- yes. You are going to see spoilers. You just You're not going to be able to avoid it. I think it's just a really terrible mistake. I think everything's going to get mega spoiled.
2: I have this problem. My daughter... Lives in America, and she's a huge uh, nerd as well. And she's going to be funny me up going, "Dad, Dad, you won't believe what's happening on the Mandalorian." I'm going, "I don't care. I'm not talking to you." Yeah,
1: sorry, we were talking about Black Widow, weren't yes. we? Yeah, I do think it's going to be great. I think there's a great cast. Obviously, we meant, you mentioned Florence Pugh, who I think is wonderful. Rachel Weiss as well, who yeah. is just astonishing. I adore her completely. And aforementioned David Harbour as well is going to be in it. I think Black Widow. It's late, but I think it's going to be good. And obviously, Captain Marvel too. I want to see more Carol. I want to know, obviously, we saw her in Endgame and we saw how powerful she was. I want to know what else has she been up to? What's happened between the 90s and the period of Infinity War and Endgame with Carol? Like what, is, what else has she been doing?
0: Are we positive about the future of female superheroes?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. As we've kind of talked about, I think it's really important to have a wide and varied representation of these female characters. So I think we're talking about representation of women. We're also talking about representation of women of colour, especially LGBTQ women or LGBTQ people in general, but also on specific characters, because I think it's really easy to have your kind of standard female hero template. But honestly, I want to see more heroes like Jessica Jones, for example. Um, <laughs>
0: because I've not seen it. So
1: what I love about Jessica Jones was she's really not the hero type. She's kind of got these powers. She is essentially, in a way, forced to use them. She doesn't really want to, but she kind of does what she can. But she's also going through very personal struggles of her own. I think that that particular show really worked very well to kind of not only represent the sort of character that Jessica is, but also other characters and how they interacted with Jessica. And it it talked a lot about things like addiction and mental health and obviously control. With with, with Kilgrave. Who's one of the most complex and fascinating villains obviously one of the things where the Marvel TV shows did really well was with, with villains because obviously Daredevil also has Wilson Fisk yeah. uh, who's outstanding. It's such a good show. But I really love Jessica Jones and I'd love to see more characters like her. Characters that are really complex and, sometimes, and maybe a bit difficult. Something that gives an actress a lot to kind of get her teeth into that's not just the kind of cookie cutter, stereotypical heroine, but someone who Really comes through adversity, a you know really nuanced character with with real depth that's what I want to see. There's a lot to be positive about. I just hope that when we're talking about superheroes, we are primarily talking about Marvel, we're also talking about d c but just really any company that wants to start making movies about powerful women, you know women with really strong values, women that are leading their own teams. For example, you know, a lot of people have talked about an A-Force movie based yeah. on the scene in Endgame. Whether we will get that or not, I don't know, but I think that would be great. I think it's really important to show a variety of women who are experiencing different things and who can bring different things to the table as well. It's a big ask, I know, because I've basically just asked for the world. <laughs> um, but I think it's possible. I think it's definitely possible. There's There's such a variety of characters out there if we can see jessica jones portrayed so fantastically on tv we can see a character like her or even her herself on the big screen i think would be wonderful
2: i'd like to see more of those sort of strong conflicted people with interesting stories interesting challenges and deep layered stories as well it's just not oh bad guy good guy or bad woman, good woman, and, you know, big battle, and it's all resolved. You know, I, I like the way in Jessica Jones, Kilgrave was still haunting her even after mm-hmm. she'd killed him. Or had she. no
0: point you watching it now, then. Or
2: had she. Yeah, that's the point. We don't know.
1: Yeah, it, it's really interesting, though, isn't it? Because it, it speaks a lot for survivors of abuse. Yeah. Because it is. It is a form of abuse, what he's doing to her. And you just because the abuse stops, it doesn't mean it's not with you. No, exactly. Uh, And that show just portrayed that, I think, really sensitively, but also really compellingly. Yes. Well. Um,
0: Okay, I think we need to wrap up. So that was our take on female superhero films. And I think you, our listeners, will find that as fascinating as we did chatting about this. Thank you all very much for this. And we'll see you on the next
2: one. Thank you, Emma.
1: Thanks, guys.
2: To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website at theflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflix.uk. Thanks for listening.